Today on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA, we have your week in sports cars, our fan-driven show. Your questions, well, they make my flappity mouth talk and my co-pilot's beautiful British flappity mouth go up and down. Graham Goodwin, how you doing? How's the old uh, flapper doing as well? Uh, it's all good. Um, back from our second 20-hour road trip to uh, the south of France, this time with air conditioning functioning on the DSC fun bus. What? Um, yes, I know, but of course it wasn't quite as warm. Uh, and it certainly wasn't on race day, but uh, we'll come to that later. Uh, yep, good. Uh, getting into prep for Le Mans. Um, I will be on site down there. Uh, together with a small team from uh, Daily Sports Car um, as part of the ACO TV uh, broadcast thing. I think we've got a couple of questions about TV, which we'll come to later. But no, it's all good. News is starting to kind of flow. We're getting calendars coming for 2021. Um, I think people are beginning to get their heads around the new normal for the moment, MP, this side of the pond. Uh, I don't know about uh, your side of the pond with uh, the likes of the Indianapolis eight hours provisional entry coming through as well this week. So um, lots to talk about. Yeah, I saw that entry list. It looked interesting. It looked healthier than I expected. So that was super positive. So we got a couple things we might talk about, a bit of a preamble before we get to our four categories of WEC, Aslam, Elms, ACO, IMSA, Fun and General. Do we want to dive into what you know and can share about the the full composition of Le Mans coverage options? I know for sure we get a lot of questions every day from fans wanting to know how they can watch it, where they can watch it, and when. And I know we got a little item in IMSA as well that's been rather extraordinary that might not be in one of the questions. Well, okay, let's talk about uh, about the uh, Le Mans 24 Hours coverage. Uh, there are going to be significantly fewer broadcasters on site. I can tell you that for certain. Eurosport that also feed in, I know, to the Velocity and the most trend-on-demand coverage in the U.S. will not be operating from Le Mans, but uh, doing that uh, from distance. They've announced... Uh, their commentary team, and it's pretty good. It's great to see Louise Beckett, uh, one of our regulars of part of the WEC family, uh, will be uh, in their London studio as part of that show. Uh, no idea what's going on with any other broadcaster, whether or not that be just audio or audio-visual uh, coverage, aside from ACO TV. Uh, for ACO TV, read the WEC TV team, two teams, uh, it will be Martin Haven, uh, Alan McNish, and some grey-haired, slightly fat bloke from uh, sitting around my table. Uh, and on the other team, it will be Ben Constituris and two fine race drivers, Jamie Campbell-Walter. Uh, that, by the way, is one name, just it's uh, it's hyphenated. And Peter Dumbreck. So uh, who's the, the second era. fine driver then? Uh, um, just kidding, kidding. We love ourselves <laughs> some Mr. Dumbreck. Uh, and... And possibly, and again, this is supposition at the moment, I'm not sure anybody else is going to have pit lane reporters there. Uh, now, uh, we've not yet been told what the offer is in terms of where you'll be able to hear our coverage, other than it is effectively the host broadcaster international feed. There will be the Le Mans app. There will also be uh, an additional 
digital presence for the Le Mans 24 Hours, uh, which is uh, 24united.com. I'll double-check that before we finish the show. That, at the moment, not fully online, but I believe that is the ACO's response to the lessons they believe they learned with Virtual Le Mans. So on there, you will find top-up coverage, a bit more of an in-depth, a bit richer in experience than just commentary. As for when commentary will be live, despite some reports to, uh, to uh, that suggest every session, I don't think we're going to have cameras up for the first free practice session or for the first uh, Michelin Le Mans Cup slash Road to Le Mans race. But every other session, I believe that there will be coverage available somewhere for the uh, free practice, qualifying, hyperpole, the race, and at least the uh, second road to Le Mans race. Not sure yet about the other sport race, which is the Carrera Cup. Jeez. <laughs> I need to give a big shout out. We got some wonderful emails. Nothing but love from folks involved with the Eurosport coverage. So, I mean, how could we not get lovely, warm emails as such? I'm getting ready to go get my Eurosport LM24 full tattoo sleeve on my arm, as I said I would on Twitter. I'm not. I'm just talking out of my ass. But anyways, uh, yeah, boy, this is going to be an interesting puzzle to solve and present. Graham, knowing that yep. there are many fans who want to consume 24 hours of competition at Circuit de la Sarthe, and I'm hoping that more information on the how, where, and when, and who, what is or isn't geo-blocked, etc., that might end up being a perfect dailysportscar.com post. Hey, you want to well, watch the a, race? Here's how you it, can it or can't. That now, I mean, as of today... Uh, now I know exactly what the logistical details are. I can then shift effortlessly uh, on Monday into journalistic mode, and I will directly ask the question. It may be that right this second they're not absolutely sure of the final details. Some of these uh, issues about rights are decided pretty late. We should, though, be able to tell you where you can hear the on-site uh, coverage from effectively the team of which I'm a part. Um, so now the big prep job begins. Reams and reams of preparatory notes uh, that I'll be doing for the remainder of the uh, of the team. Um, some of whom, of course, uh, you know, live and breathe ACO rules racing. Some others slot in. Uh, it'd be very interesting, by the way, to hear Peter Dumbrecht's thoughts on this one, because Peter, of course, with a long history at Le Mans, sometimes dramatic, uh, but Peter will be driving straight from there the following weekend take part in a second 24-hour race uh, this time as a driver the Nürburgring 24 hours is back to back with Le Mans this year <sighs> what else shall we cover before we get rolling with questions my man well I mean um, we've actually got a race meeting underway right now if what? your side of the pond it's, uh, it's one we weren't expecting to have at uh, the beginning of this year but uh, am I right there's a, there's a six hour race breaking out this weekend there is I'll be getting up early-ish tomorrow morning to consume that fine thing. Granted, when I say tomorrow morning, hopefully I'll get this posted here on Friday. If not, and I post it on Saturday, I, I will have gotten up this morning to watch, yes, and consume the moved Salem Six Hours of the Glen, which has become a 
Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta. I'm still trying to get all the honorees and sponsoring type adjustments into my brain. Just calling it Road Atlanta is what I want to do. Trying to get all that process to watch. And yeah, just try and enjoy six hours of competition. have a bit of a unique precedent here, Graham. I've only seen this happen maybe once or twice in the past. And that was IMSA released its balance of performance tables for Road Atlanta. This was late last week. And it was almost immediately subject to revision. I believe it was this Tuesday that a revised BOP was published. And the most notable change that I saw jump out was with the Cadillac DPIs. So the original BOP had no change to the vehicle's weight. The Cadillacs, Graham, running at the heaviest weight of 960 kilos. This compared to the Acuras at 930 and the Mazdas, the lightest, at 910. The general visual statement made at the most recent race, Road America, listening to the drivers, watching what took place, all the feedback that was coming in said, hey, we're getting murdered here on tire consumption, and it's because of the weight. And, of course, every manufacturer moans about BOP. Even the ones who receive the biggest advantage through BOP change say that it's not enough or they're being disadvantaged somehow. We know the game. There was, Graham, though, I would say pretty strong consensus. Something had to change for the Cadillacs. Now, their their single lap pace or short burst pace, definitely impressive. But the second half of a stint tire wear was brutal, simply brutal. Point being, coming out of Road America, there was, I think, a bit of a global expectation. Yeah, Cadillacs can get a bit of a break here. And the BOP that came out did not have what was expected can't tell you the process, whether hierarchy at IMSA noted this, whether it was teams and manufacturer calling into IMSA, screaming bloody murder, but we had an adjustment. We had the use of rule 222, the principal rule employed and posted atop this BOP adjustment, which really stands out to me, Graham, as it's... We need to respect this. As I interpret it, this, and I've spoken with uh, some people who compete with Cadillacs as well, this was a recognition that the first BOP issued was not right. And rather than just stonewalling, which was a bit of an old IMSA habit, well, you know, we'll get to it at the next round, or, well, sorry, they decided to be proactive And so you can't congratulate someone for getting something wrong, but you can give them applause for recognizing something was wrong and fixing it, taking the slings and arrows fired their way and doing something. So this principal rule that they employed posted atop the revised BOP in red uh, in such rare circumstances, officials, as a practical matter, may make a determination that it is not contemplated by or is it consistent with the rules uh, such determinations are reviewable by the 
supervisory officials, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is their rule that says, hey, if we see there's something wrong, this is the clause we give ourselves to fix it, and they did that. And I can just say I don't know if this is something that would have been expected from IMSA prior to its uh, leadership change going into the most recent off season. So they got it wrong, recognized it either on their own or by getting shouted at, but acted upon it, took 15 kilos off of the Cadillacs. They're down at 945, at least for the opening practice session today. They went one, two, which is again, pretty impressive. Uh, short burst pace has never been the issue, but the fact that IMSA seemed to recognize that they got it wrong, I uh, I got to admit, man, I wish we had more of this in the sport. So, should we kick off and do some uh, questions for IMSA to kick off the uh, the show? MP? It's your choice. You are the official selector well, of what we do. Let's do that. And um, the very first word that's going to come out of my mouth uh, for this week's questions uh, is Westbrook. Uh, not that Julian, uh, Julian Westbrook, Richard Westbrook, is going to be uh, asking questions. This one comes from John Richter. And he asks, uh, says it's awesome to hear that Richard Westbrook is going to be driving for Grasser in the Lamborghini Huracan this weekend. Is this a one-off effort? Could this be part of a factory drive for 2021? We need him back full-time at IMSA on a related topic. Any updates on Joey Hand or Dirk Mueller? Now, the other, I mean, Richard's also got a Le Mans driver as well because uh, he's going to be one of the third drivers in the Aston Martins together with another full-season IMSA guy, uh, Harry Tinknell. Uh, in the Aston Martins, but um, I've not heard of any options available immediately for Richard Westy to be back in IMSA full-time in 21. What say you, MP? Yeah, I was really depressed when I saw that. Um, I mean, IMSA as a whole has been fairly enjoyable this year, and seeing that Richard Westbrook has somehow weaseled his way into uh, another drive, I mean, really, really struck me, struck me in a very um, poor and sad state. Kidding aside, um, <laughs> I love me some Richard Westbrook. Uh, I do not know of any additional drives. That's because I'm ignorant and lacking the knowledge that I need to provide a suitable answer. So, this is I'm actually not on IMSA duty this weekend, although I am watching and observing if someone else who uh, was previously uh, squired to do the reporting. So I don't know if there's more coming for our man. I got to believe, though, that the questions about Joey and Dirk as well I'll give you a partial answer on Dirk, if that helps. Well, I was just going to throw in here, Graham, that I think Westy is is more known as a utility player than Mm -hmm. Joey and Dirk. And I'm not saying they Mm -hmm. aren't folks who could receive a phone call, go anywhere and do anything and achieve at the highest level. I just think reputationally, Joey and Dirk are thought more of as factory guys, whereas Westy, although he's driven for many factories, won big races, etc., I think he still has a reputation of one who is always at the ready, can go at any point in time, doesn't necessarily have that uh, factory-only type um, background. 
kind of like a Joey or Dirk. So again, I know that Joey and Dirk want to be driving anything right now, but Westy, I would say, might come to mind first uh, for such things among those three. Yeah, he's certainly, I mean, Westy's done fairly recently British GT, and he's certainly got a fair amount of history in Pro-Am. Dirk Mueller, by the way, last weekend uh, drove uh, Haupt Racing Team AMG in the NLS, the um, nominal replacement for VLN. So uh, you would guess that we might well see Dirk uh, for the Nürburgring 24 hours this year. Uh, so that's good news for him. Jerry Hand, I've heard not a lot, I have to say, uh, about what Joey might be set up for, but uh, followed his Instagram, see. and he is being the best karting dad possible. His son Chase, excellent, demonstrating uh, familial excellence at that formative stage, and so Joey has just been full karting dad. And you know, although he hasn't really been doing a lot of racing himself that I know of, if any racing at all. He has been there with his son, trying to help his son's career take off. So that might not be the worst thing in the world as well. Um, Let's move on. Uh, Something completely different this time comes from John Wojnar. And he asks about book recommendations for him, sir, MP. MP, what are some of the good books of the golden era, the 80s and the 90s, IMSA, that won't cost an arm and a leg? There are a ton of cool-looking books on the time period, but he says they all cost around 70 to 100 clams. Uh, I suspect that's some kind of uh, code for the dollar. Um, <laughs> any is. guidance would be, much <laughs> would be much appreciated. As always, prayers for your wife. Also, I hope you're staying safe as well, Graham. Yes, I am. Uh, happy to have another negative PCR test. My fourth now. Fantastic. I'm not dying yet. Um, so, any ideas on books new or secondhand <laughs> that, that John might be able to pick up for, uh, as the film title says, just a few dollars more? Yes, and I love the clam reference. That's an old. I, I first remember hearing that, Graham, an old black and white. I can't tell you what exact decade, but I assume twenties, thirties, forties, fifties gangster film. Yeah, see, it's fifty clams. See that kind of stuff. So good, good little <laughs> callback there, John. Well, so you crack open a certain reality that you don't want, John, and that is. Hey, are there any really good books about the old kind of IMSA and whatever era? There are many. Uh, hey, are there any that don't cost a whole lot? There are none. They all cost. <laughs> I mean, you could pretty much fund uh, an old IMSA program with what some of these things cost. So, yeah. And then the secondary market, uh, they also are aware that these books are valuable. I'll even admit to buying multiple copies of new IMSA books, knowing that they will indeed uh, increase in value. I have two or three of this, three or four of that, and one will go on the bookshelf. The others will are currently sitting, I think, in storage. But yeah, uh, it's not a cheap thing. What I The only thing that comes to mind would be to look for the IMSA yearbooks. Published by IMSA, the IMSA annuals. Now, those can also cost a couple dollars. And at some point in time, when I get enough of my life organized, Graham, and things are quiet enough to where I can start turning boxes and boxes of books and press kits and memorabilia and start selling some of these things to rid them of clutter, rid my life of more clutter. 
um, there will indeed be some IMSIS books and annuals for sale. But for now, John, I would say consult your Ebays, maybe. You might also ring the Motorsport Collector in the greater Chicago area. I don't know if our dear pals and show sponsor TorontoMotorsports.com would have any in Toronto, but those IMSA annuals you might be able to pick up for, again, some of them are a lot more than others, but you probably find some for 10, 20, 30 bucks a piece. And that is certainly a fraction of what many of the 2000 and beyond newer IMSA books would cost you. So that's my recommendation. If dollars are dictating what you can buy, go the pretty awesome annual route. And there's so much good information in there. Frankly, I granted they're not out there in storage, but I consult those things frequently for so many years and will once we are in a permanent home. Um, got a, another different uh, aspect of racing here. This one comes from our good friend Ryan Terpstra, and it's a bit of a sub uh, text here from uh, our other good friend Ryan Kish. Thanks very much again, Ryan, for putting the questions together. Uh, do you have any knowledge of how the deal for the Corvette C8R being added to iRacing came together? Did Corvette feel left out? Deal is such a shock, even if it is virtual sports cars. Ryan, by the way, says, iRacing has said in the past Corvettes were tough to get because Pratt and Miller were iffy about sharing the data they required to build the car. Is this perhaps, MP, one of the really positive outturns from what we saw in lockdown with the popularity of virtual racing? I have no idea. So I'm failing at almost every question so far, (laughs) except for old books. (laughs) I don't, uh, as someone who has an iRacing account, well, yeah, as someone who has an iRacing account and has logged into it once and never turned a lap in it, this is just an area I haven't placed my focus or attention. How's this? If three people respond after we post this show and say, could you please find the answer and put it in some form of little story or something? I will. Cause right now we got two and I figure we need at least one more person to give a darn to make it worthwhile to go and chase it down. Hopefully get an answer and then spend some time writing about it either for a post with one of my clients or who knows might just be a, a good old book face post, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I have no idea and I don't know why I would know, but if you want me to know, then at least three of you tell me to go know, and then I'll tell you and then you'll know, you know, so go on, so go on. make, make Marshall's day. Tell him you want the answer. <laughs> Because you've got nothing else to do. Um, I am taking the weekend off and Monday off, by the way. So if you do respond, uh, three or more of you, yeah, you ain't getting it in the next couple of days. But I will ask. I will ask. <laughs> right. Okay. Sean Caldwell says, is there a track on the calendar where all of the DPIs could be unleashed and still have a close race? <sighs> Love that question. That's a nice one, isn't it? What about Road America? Yeah, Sebring uh, comes to mind. Ooh, uh, there's yeah. no hills. There, the, how's this turn okay. one at Road America? Yeah, uh, we've seen Gunter Schaldak's 
uh, Camaro Grand Am Rolex GT car is still coming down. Um, <laughs> we've seen we've seen vehicles scale uh, that sucker. So yeah, uncorked DPIs, some sort of issue, clash, whatever. Yeah, we we don't need we don't need Elon Musk uh, having to deploy uh, Falcon Nine Heavy to bring down uh, one of the DPIs in orbit fully uncorked. I would say Sebring, uh, just because it's flat. There are places where you can go quickly, and if you have a problem, then, yeah, it still wouldn't be super happy. But there's also a number of places where there's significant runoff. So if we're just talking the most frightening version of the cars, zero restrictions, that's the mindset that I apply. How do we do this with the safest possible outcome? The flip side, Graham, would be looking at places where it's slow enough, where even if something went wrong, there's no point where they're, you know, going at such a troubling speed that it would be problematic. So, but we don't like that. We don't want to put unleashed DPIs at a slow, crappy venue. So I'll go with Sebring. Okay. Great one here. Uh, just going to give you a moment to think about this one. George Buder says, remembers that uh, we said that the Mazda DPIs were at one point run separately, one car by Yoast, the other one by Multimatic. Do you know which car was run by whom? I've got a feeling, wasn't the 77 the Multimatic car? This is an awesome day. This is the <laughs> absolutely drive home the fact that i am a total moron day i don't know i I, never thought to ask i I probably should have i remember writing about this at daytona when that dynamic started to emerge which would have been this year it had been last year um let's take a look back at the coverage on daily sports car of the rolex 24 hours 2019 and i'm pretty certain in one of our um paddock notes which I'm pretty certain I wrote up for, for you for Racer as well, that was in there. So have a look at that one, George, and you should find the answer to that question. Then got uh, a Rocky. Um, Doogie Davis says, uh, listening to the conversation about NASCAR running uh, to incre- looking to increase numbers in IMSA, got him thinking that it really all comes down to money. That it does, Doogie, that it does. Uh, it says that I mentioned the new LMP3 cars, not the ones that currently run in the Prototype Challenge, but the newest ones, the 2020 spec ones, fit nicely between P2 and GTE. And according to Zach Brown, are cheaper to buy and run than LMP2. They most certainly are. GT3 cars have the ability to be as fast as GT3 cars, rather, have the ability to be fast as GTE cars and are cheaper to operate and build not quite sure that's absolutely true uh, across the board it seems like a very simple solution to increase grid size would be dropping lmp2 in favor of lmp3 dropping gtlm to create two separate gt3 classes one for factory back pros the other an amateur program as it is now would allow the prototype challenge to continue with the current lmp3 machines and grid size that's sort of a an encapsulation of more or less every question we've answered in the last three weeks isn't it mp yeah. Um I mean I appreciate it, Doogie, for sure. I mean that is hundred and forty eight words of of question that kind of rehashes what Graham and I have said, discussed, or answered. So 
The answer, yes. <laughs> to, get, to give you a couple of figures to play with here, Doogie, in terms of buying the package, it is absolutely true to say that's LMP3 cars, but they're about half the price of an LMP2 car. Uh, but they're fundamentally different. They're not a full carbon monocoque. It is a carbon tub with a steel roll hoop for starters before we get into all the um, rest of the kind of the running gear, the aerodynamics. As far as GTE and GT3 are concerned, that is a very movable feast. And there is not one answer because there is a wide variety of pricing depending on which make and model you are talking about. Um, it's the, the best figure I can give you is that the moment there are two cars that you could run as a GTE or you can run as a GT3. They are the Ferrari 488 GT car. They can run as a GT3 or as a GTE. Relatively simply, it is slightly more involved for the Aston Martin, which requires effectively different bodywork. Uh, I think it's a different fuel cell and a different engine, but can be done by five skilled for which read ProDrive, for which read expensive technicians in about five hours. And the saving to have the GT3 car and the GTE kit over having both cars, two separate chassis, if you like, from memory is somewhere between 250 and 500,000 of your euros. Uh, so it is doable. They have done it uh, in testing and development uh, and I've, I've run both cars on consecutive weekends, both versions of the car on consecutive weekends. But the differences in price will start with the Stratospheric for which we Ferrari and will come down to the rather more real world accessible. If you're talking about race teams, which from memory MP tend to be focused around the kind of Audi Lamborghini level. Yeah, that's what stands out here too. Uh, the, I was just next? gonna gonna say to close on this. We're just at that place where we need some major decisions to be finalized and formalized. I don't necessarily mean this second. I don't mean that this has to happen. Even I would say before before the end of the season, before the end of the year. There's still so much going on with everything decisions on future formulas covid financial impact just so many things that this is one of those items where it, it never stops being important it just falls into a natural place of whether it's critical or not um i would say that this is a situation where uh we need to get some answers we at least need to get some some movement here this is not something that can wait for a really long time because we are going to see entry numbers reduce and reduce until we do get some direction. Folks need confidence in what's happening in the future, where we're going, if they can use what we're using now longer, if they need to budget and plan for a change in formula and whatnot. And I don't care about what's been announced, about what's coming a year, two, three, however many from now. Most things are just fully up in the air. And so I'm not saying, again, we need final, Graham, but we got to start giving folks in IMSA, and this could probably expand out to many other categories that use GTE, GT, well, not many others use GTE, but GT formulas in general, GT3, 
even four. We know the specialized GTE slash GTLM. Got to give some folks a little bit of direction, factory and privateer, because you can't have folks in a financial void, in a everything void in the midst of a pandemic without having any knowledge or confidence of what they might need to brace for, prepare for on the horizon. So it's an yep. over, it's an oversimplified statement, but this, the time part, that's the crunch. That's the part that has to be respected and acted upon. Yep, absolutely. And not least because in the fallout from pandemic, things like uh, the supply chains are, not as fluid as they once were. Uh, it is taking longer to get cars and bits of cars around this planet right now because the flexibility of the supply chain is not what it was a year ago. Um, move along really quickly. Uh, Andre Good says, um, with COVID still rearing, rearing its ugly head and EMSA having three categories with essential single-digit entries right now, the force getting close at times to doing so, do you see IMSA reducing the manufacturer's fees to encourage companies like Aston Martin, Bentley and Glickenhaus to join? Andre Good says, with COVID still rearing its extremely ugly head, IMSA having three categories with single-digit entries, the fourth getting close to being at that point, do you see IMSA reducing the manufacturer's fees to encourage companies like Aston Martin, Bentley and perhaps even Glickenhaus to join? MP. So, chicken or the egg scenario here, Andre. We know that IMSA, its parent company, NASCAR, have been hit incredibly hard with financial losses due to COVID-19. We know that IMSA has been really, really smashed financially as a result. So, what do you do? Do you turn down the number for this manufacturing fee to maybe invite a couple more, get a couple more in, but then put your organization at financial in financial peril? Or do you keep working what you're working and just realize that maybe the times are dictating a decline in overall entries and manufacturer involvement for all the reasons we've discussed a hundred times about COVID and the impact that it has. So I hear what you're saying. I don't disagree that if you had four or five manufacturers willing to come in, if the fee was cut in half, would you do it? Would you consider it? Would you do it and have them sign NDAs <laughs> that only they get that half rate price? I don't, I mean, yeah, maybe that wouldn't be above board morally, but maybe you do that. But I'd say the biggest concern here, Andre, IMSA cannot afford to lose another dollar. And so that would be the thing that would make me say you got to push back from this concept. Okay, Graham, flappy mouth part done with me answering. Now it's time for me to load the World Endurance Championship, Asian Le Mans Series, European Le Mans Series, Automobile Club de l'Ouest questions into a question cannon and pull the trigger ever so gently so they land in your lap. We're going to go with a guy who we have never heard of. Definitely no. a first-time submitter oh, really? of the questions. Danielle Sumers-Giel. I oh, think he French. might be French. Yes, mm. definitely. Uh, as Carlos Tavares 
the chairman of the managing board at Peugeot SA Group A, is the official starter of Le Mans. How likely is it, Graham, that there's going to be some significant positive news from Peugeot? I mean, it'd be hilarious if he announced we're getting out altogether. But but, uh, after waving the flag, and then he just takes the flag, right? Uh, Just takes it, puts it in the back of something that's not a Peugeot and leaves. Um, Well, that's a quick word about Carlos Tavares. Uh, What an interesting character. I'll come to the Peugeot bit in a minute. He's got another link with the ACR family, which is he certainly was, and I believe still is, a private shareholder in Adesse. Uh, Yeah, which also which of course provides the chassis for the ACO's H24 concept, the hydrogen fueled concept. So the ADES chassis, whilst it's not been terribly successful in LMP3, rather bizarrely has provided the basis for two completely different hydrogen fueled. prototype programs as the dutch one which i always complete if it is forza four i think it's called uh and then there's the h24 uh uh, uh project which uh, they have at least two cars um which is looking to get into uh racing i think we possibly possibly would have seen it progressing uh this season had we not had covid but that's another link with carlos tafaris but going back to danielle for i think it's her uh question yeah, you. I think I'm going to hear something positive. Um, I have a little information, which uh, I promised last week, but for reasons of uh, administrative and personal chaos, didn't happen on DSC. But yes, uh, you'll be hearing, I think, a lot more detail about Peugeot's plans to join the FIA World Endurance Championship. And the fact that you'll be hearing it this year means that most of us can guess uh, whether or not you and I have been correct for the last two or three months uh, and whether or not that's going to be an LMDH, brackets, no, it isn't, or a Le Mans hypercar, brackets, yes, it is. And I'll be happy to explain why when I finally get to that reckoning for Delhi Sports Car. But, yeah, I think you're going to hear some very positive news about the uh, the time skills that are predicted. And I hope a bit more detail of Peugeot's uh FIWC program for 2022. There we go. Uh, We're going to go to, well, yet another new questionnaire. Dan Mm -hmm. Isle. Mm. Summers Gilles, I believe. Yes. Yes. Uh, French Canadian, also known as Practice France. So yes. Uh, <laughs> so this new two brand new questionnaires in a row asks Graham, do you see the LMDH class being similar to the TCR concept used in touring cars, whereby the manufacturers build the cars, but customers tend to run them on the track with varying levels of works assistance in the background. I think the answer is the op- the option is there for exactly this. I think we're going to see a variety of solutions in LMDH. If we get the kind of take up that everybody's hoping for, and by that I mean the ACO, IMSA, and literally everybody else, um, 
the answer there is it, it leaves open the possibilities for everything from a full traditional factory program right down to, and I, I mean that in kind of um, financial uh, terms, if you like, down to basically a team that uh, buys the chassis and, and powertrain and uh, puts in their own kind of pro-am um, driver squad into that. And then in between, of course, you've got, effect, I guess what we call the GT3, GTD uh, level of um, program, which basically means privately owned car with some semblance of support, including factory drivers. And my guess is, MP, uh, through the GTLM, GT Pro and prototype ranks, there's an awful lot of people at the moment hoping that that's exactly what will happen. Uh, I think the chances of there being a very large number of factory teams have not got better, have they, over the last three or four months. But um, by my reckoning, and I think the kind of things we're hearing about the background, there uh, are a number, and that number is not one, it isn't ten either, but it's not one, of um, manufacturers, of OEMs, that are looking at least in part for their business case for LMDH to be uh, to involve uh, customer cars. That's good news for um, the kind of the the solidity of the kind of the numbers for grids moving from 2023 onwards. I think we are going to have to be into hashtag wait and see territory to see just how many of those turn out with cars in the carbon fiber. There we go. Well, we're going to take a break here from new questionnaires with names that work the same number of letters and in the same order. We're going to go to the world-renowned Megan's mm-hmm. Motorsport. How hey. good was this past weekend's race in the European Le Mans Series? It had everything you could ever want from an endurance race. Your thoughts, gentlemen. Um, it was very, very good. At the end, it was extremely good. Uh, there were just, after again a long weekend with pretty high temperatures, rain is a great leveler. It was particularly good to see the inter-Europol guys getting stuck in and at times kind of troubling podium positions in their ligier. That was very good to see. There was some real wheel-to-wheel action. There was an absolute dice for the win in the last. 25 minutes uh, the g-drive guys thought they got it won with a better pit stop than the united guys felipe albuquerque thought differently and that team having royally messed up their tire strategy were left with two options pace well they had that and it didn't quite work uh, and consistency in error three running they certainly did that but they required a third element and that was luck And they got that with the safety car that effectively stopped them from being lapped. Um, That was something that young Phil Hansen uh, pushed hard to avoid throughout uh, an excellent error-free stint. At times on absolutely the wrong rubber on a bizarre surface, MP. I don't know if you caught any of it, but this is a track that since they resurfaced that track in the wet, it just doesn't drain. It's just the most bizarre thing. So um, in... All classes, we had great action, but in particular in LMP2, it was a topsy-turvy race. And the only way I found the ability to actually make sense of uh, what had actually happened was to literally go through and do a race report car by car. And I reckon at times 
there were possibly six or seven cars that had at least an outline shot of the win and more than half the LMP2 grid um, with a reasonable shot at the podium. Um, really unlucky, it's got to be said, the Palace Racing crew uh, just got the wrong side of the uh, the caution strategy side of things. Really unlucky too on the good years were the Algar Pro cars, one of which with Loic Duval at the wheel ended up uh, lucklessly upside down and has given Salmon Stewcocks quite the headache uh, in terms of making sure that uh, cars are ship shape and Algar fashion for the Le Mans 24 hours to come. Uh, but it was one heck of a race, and it added the two things we love to see in endurance racing. Water, what a great leveller, and darkness. Don't cars look good? We don't have very many lights, by the way, at Paul Ricard, but don't they look and sound fantastic into darkness? And happily, I think we're going to get more of that in the year to come in Asia and in Europe. We are going to... Where are we going, Greg Bedwin? You know where we're going. Good old Richard Cooper. Mm. says ACO races seem to be improving in the area of not fiddling with the results with post-race penalties. Is this down to the teams or are there are the scrutineers being more lenient regarding infractions that make no difference? It's a fair point. We've not had much since we came back to racing. Uh, I'll, I'll say this. Is it frustrating when we get this constant stream of issues that, change the results it's massively frustrating i've i've voiced it on this program on this uh, podcast i've voiced it in the press room loudly at times at uh, varying uh, times of the the evening and into the early morning with race officials with race pr staff with race organizers there is an undeniable truth that a fair proportion of those post-race penalties are for things that needed to be penalized um, and frustrating though it may be, what do you do? Do you let that fly? Um, you let it slide? Or do you remind the teams that the responsibility is theirs? I think in part, um, as with the kind of tactics that Eduardo Freitas constantly uses to do with track limits, uh, it is simply a matter of reminding the um, the that those that are committing those infractions, these are the rules we will be enforcing them and hoping that enforcing them once will be enough to remind them that probably they don't want to mess with that again. Um, is there more leeway being being shown? I've not heard a single mention that that might be the case. Not one. Uh, so it may just be that uh, some of the messages have got through in terms of some of those faults. Would I be massively surprised if... Uh, the race organisers were cutting a tiny bit of slack. No, I wouldn't. Would I object to it? No, I wouldn't. Um, I think it's been a good thing that we've been able to walk away from the track, whether or not it be 10pm or 1 in the morning, uh, knowing full well that that's been the result. We've had a couple of minor infractions that have affected results, but nothing very much. Long may that continue, Richard. Long may that continue. We are going to a fine submitter... If there's a, a pecking order of questionnaires, something, mm -hmm. I don't know why I'm using that word this episode repeatedly, but I like it, so I am. Stuart Hart, mm. any idea? Hey, yes. On the number of races in race weekend format for the 2021 FIA WAC. 
curious about early entry prospects, chances of Sebring going ahead. Kyle Lamy, is that still a goer? Trying to get a feel here, our man, Mr. Hart. Formats, what, where, when. Tell us everything about WEC in 2021, Graham. Well, I can tell you it looks at the moment to be six races. That much was confirmed in a media briefing at Spa by none other than Jean Tots with Never heard uh, of PF. No, me neither. Uh, a smashing brown jumper uh, with with Pierre Fion in the room uh, for that. Sebring is an interesting one. I think they'd love to be going back to Sebring. I think there is doubt as to whether or not that's going to be possible. I would not be remotely surprised to see a provisional calendar that still had Sebring on it with an asterisk next to it. I would equally well not be that surprised to see a provisional calendar that didn't have Sebring on it for 2021. Um, What I think we will definitely have, whether or not it is declared at the time when we get that calendar, is there being a very readily accessible plan B and probably a plan C as well. What do I expect? I expect at least half those six races to be in Europe, maybe four, and then a short uh, flyaway season at the end of the year. What might be on that flyaway season, I think, will be determined by the public health situation in the various countries that might be part of it. Amongst the ones I would expect to be on that short list would be Japan. Obviously, there's been some issues there. Bahrain, it's been a, uh, a bit of a gimme for uh, the WEC in terms of a safe haven. Sincerely hope Carl Army is on that list, uh, but certainly I'm not expecting any more than six. That, by the way, might lead to a bit of an interesting knock-on. I think everybody is expecting t- some teams to struggle into 2021 simply because of the prevailing economic situation. With the move to six races and the fact that those six includes a guaranteed Le Mans Uh, starts that might have some interesting knock-on effects with european le mans series teams uh will some of them and it doesn't have to be very many step up to either bolster the number of teams that are going to be in uh wec we know we're going to lose at least one wec uh lmp2 team next year expecting settler racing to move over to gte am after an unhappy time with the delara If that means that two or three teams move over to WEC, that has an interesting knock-on effect in terms of the ability for the WEC, so the ELMS rather, to accommodate more LMP3 teams. At the moment, that's been where teams have been sent away because the grid was full at the start of this season. Um, So it could be that we see a stronger LMP3 field in the LMS and that uh, some of that slack is taken up by teams moving over from the Michelin Le Mans Cup. It's going to be interesting and edgy. Um, at the moment, teams simply don't have the answers as to where they're going to be, what position they're going to be in into 2021. Uh, and race organisers and team owners and managers have got one hell of a task to try to second and third guess just exactly where we're going to be in terms of the ability for uh, race operators to to run those events and to what kind of logistics are going to be required to get the cars where they need to be. Whether or not that's the Asian Le Mans series in early 2021, the European Le Mans series, and WEC as we move further into the new year. Cool. 
Uh, let's see. Let's go to our pal. It feels like we haven't had enough right turn lover of late on the show. Granted, we took about two weeks off because of me, because I'm an idiot. But uh, so kind of no, 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 no. We, we're not we're not explaining that. No, no. People have asked the question, and we're not going to explain that. We're going to let them imagine exactly what that might be. Just as long as they don't 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 get to the truth of it, we're we're going to be okay on that one, MP. It's okay. So Just don't go digging the papers or anything like that. So do not Google Marshall Pruitt and animal husbandry is what we're trying no. to say here. No. Okay. Indeed. Um, what's the story behind Magneto, also known as Michael Fassbender, mm-hmm. the Proton ELMS Porsche running a Project One number? It, it's a, a, my apologies here, right, Turn Lovey. This is about the third or possibly even fourth time you put this one in. And it is a question I keep meaning to ask Christian Reed. Uh, the problem is that every single time I've been down to that garage. Now, bear in mind, we are not allowed into the garages now. So it's a matter um, of effectively just meeting Christian in a socially distanced fashion, uh, if I possibly can. And I've simply not had that opportunity. It is quite difficult to get uh, into those conversations in a paddock. And between races, I'll be blunt, I'd forgotten about it. Um, what you, uh, what uh, right turn I was asking here is the number 93 has been a number that uh, Project One have used before. It's not been a number traditionally that Proton Competition have used before. Why has that ended up on an ELMS car um, on uh, in a team that would normally be using 77 and, seven, and 77, 78 and 88 if they've got the option of three? The answer is I don't know. While we're about it, by the way, with Michael Fassbender um, – I did read in the aftermath of Michael's shunt at Paul Ricard in qualifying a fair degree of pretty cruel asshattery on social media about his abilities as a driver. Pack it in is the straight answer here. It was a simple mistake that that the, the conditions on the track when the cars came out were extraordinarily tricky i mean the, everybody up to and including the factory drivers that were present were saying there are places where it looked dry it just wasn't when you expected it to dry and it normally would and you could even call for uh, intersource slicks it just wouldn't dry and he just made an error he got the car wide went over the curbs terribly slippery and headed uh, fast in one direction into the barrier mercifully he was okay sadly the car wasn't and they did not start that race and that will be a hard lesson well won I've read, too, an awful lot of commentary about is he being put into the deep end too early. This is a big leap for Michael Fassbender, but there's a very sensible program behind it. He is not, for instance, going to the Le Mans 24 hours this year, and that's a really sensible move. Uh, Whether or not we see Michael in a cup car in the um, support race, I have absolutely no idea yet. I've not seen a... a, um, uh, an entry list for that list, that, uh, that race. Uh, but a long chat spa with Richard Leitz. Uh, he was telling me all sorts of things, some of the things uh, off the record, all of which were good in terms of the way that the program was being managed. Felipe Laza, who's the third person in that 93 car, long-time driver coach for uh, Michael. Um, and he's the one that's basically making the calls in terms of where Michael's uh, driving abilities are. Richard Leitz is there to help that duo 
just bring it all together in terms of the endurance racing and the GTE side of it, which is a big leap. The fact you're getting out of maybe a GT3 car with anti-lock brakes into a GTE car that doesn't have that uh, you know, extremely handy system in, uh, in mixed conditions uh, is a tricky one. But don't know. We'll ask. If I get the opportunity at Le Mans to ask uh, Christian, I will certainly ask that question. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? But just my plea to all of you is, give this guy a break. Um, he is taking this extremely seriously. We're not getting into any celebrity type interview situations at all with him. We're giving him space to learn. Uh, there's pressure enough uh, without all the rest of it. So you know. To be honest with you, anybody that's not been behind the wheel of a, you know, a GTE car uh, in mixed conditions, in particular on track service like that, you guys, honestly, you know nothing about it. Um, listen to what the other drivers are saying and take a look, by the way, at a tweet that came back in response to some of the ass hattery from Matt Griffin, who said himself he nearly went off exactly the same points, making exactly the same error. And that's Matt Griffin, who's been a professional race driver uh, for what, 20 years now? Uh, knocking on for it, uh, highly rated by Ferrari. So uh, answer on the number, don't know. Answer on Michael Fassbender, which is not a question that's been asked. Let's all back off and let this guy breathe. Are you alleging, mm. Graham, yeah. that there are people on the internet who <gasps> are prone to saying unkind things to others? It's mainly the U.S. president at the moment, but, I mean, aside from that... At the yeah. U.S. president, I agree. It's a travesty. People should be nicer to him. He yes. deserves it's all outrageous. the love in the world, and I'm tired mm. of the bias being displayed. Excuse me. I was just coughing up a biscuit. Well, at least it wasn't a lung, so that's good. <laughs> uh, let's see. Where are we going to go here in the final, in the vestiges, last little bits of Wekasm Elms Echo? Uh, comments on Baikalis. They didn't go up in flames last time out. They did pretty well, didn't they? I mean, uh, I mean, Baikalis, uh, I think James Conser, uh, Counter is asking the question, isn't he? And they came out and looked fairly convincing. They were quicker than the P2 cars. Um, they were relatively reliable for quite a long time in that race. It wasn't 24 hours and it wasn't six either, but they certainly did not disgrace themselves and hopefully they'll get back i believe it was electronics issue that finally uh, put them into the garage um but for quite a while they were running ahead of the rebellions the rebellion rather which uh, made a massive error in terms of the um tire pressures at the start of the spa six hours but yeah let's just hope for everybody's sake here no doubt in my mind that there's people working extremely hard to make that car reliable um, all I keep saying it. All it has to be is is utterly reliable and quicker than a P2 car, and there's a result there. It's the utterly reliable bit that's the problem. It's things like heat management, isn't it? Heat management, as you know, we could all joke about it. That has been a bit of a problem for by Collis uh, for a number of seasons. But uh, it might just be, you know, that there's a very short space between utter failure and finding that sweet spot i hope they have a good le mans and i hope we hear some positivity about what i hope is coming next which is their 
uh, hypercar program for 2021. Uh, we've heard very little from the team on that front. Um, very, very little indeed, worryingly so. Uh, but I'm hoping that's because we're going to get a big ta-da! And here we go. We're going to go head-to-head with Jim Glickenhouse and the might of Toyota. Uh, putting aside, by the way, again, some of the cynicism about it, if we get a five-car hypercar um, grid in 2021, is it the best? No. But we do get something that I know a lot of listeners to this podcast, a lot of race watchers do like, which is the big factory team, the block-busting busting factor, factory team that is Toyota against some plucky privateers. It's a little bit Audi Pescarolo, isn't it? And I know an awful lot of people that found that battle for a number of years, a huge pleasure uh, to, to just see the little guy knocking lumps out of the factories whenever they possibly could. Uh, I'm up for a bit of that for a year. We could do with something blowing away the cobwebs after what's been, let's face it, a hell of a year in 2020. Hashtag lump knockers. Uh, <laughs> that sounds vaguely uh, pornographic, so I'm going to leave that be right there. So, Graham... I am thinking about how we thankfully, fatefully incorporated some right turn lover into our show. We've got ourselves some James counter. Uh, we've got the various French female or otherwise Dan I L who knows what the rest of their name is before we say farewell to Weck Aslam's Elms echo. We got to have ourselves some Jacob Bame. I mean, Ooh. I'm just saying, we we would actually not the show. It's not the show without Jacob. We'd be earning some sort of violation from federal communications standards and whatnot. So, <laughs> of the five, do you want to pick one or two? Uh, you want to pick your own? Let's have a quick look. Right, okay. Um, Jacob asks, how are the 2021 Le Mans hypercar development programs coming along? Can we hope for at least a glimpse of them during the Le Mans week, or should we not expect spy shots or reveals until later on? The answer here is you certainly won't see the Glickenhaus, although there's a bit of an update from Jim on DSC in the last couple of days, a uh, long chat with him about the at the Nürburgring of the new 004C, which is the car that, if his road car sales uh, go as they hope they will, we should see as a, uh, a GT3 within the next couple of years. Uh, but also tells me that the 007 is, which is their Le Mans hypercar, is on track uh, towards the planned and programmed two-car full-season WEC entry, uh, that the engine will be on the dyno early next month, that they've got one more wind tunnel uh, session due for the aerodynamic package, and all is well, which is great to see. But there certainly will not be a presence for Jim Glickenhaus at Le Mans. Jim won't be there principally because the number going 24 hours is the following week. And as everybody's aware, with all the the very messy cross-border public health, travel restriction, carnage, uh, the most sensible thing to do is to get to the place you need to be the most, and that is where his car is going to be making its debut. So, no, we're not going to see anything from um, Glickenhaus at Le Mans this year. I don't know whether or not we'll see or hear anything from Bicolis. You would guess that if they're ready to say something, that would be the place to do it. 
I'm aware that we could have seen um, the latest iteration of the Toyota road car version of their hypercar, but will not. Okay. Um, and my understanding for the decision on that was that there will be other announcements that the ACO wish to make. And you can start the guessing about which possible multinational headed up by a guy who's very good at waving flags that might be um but uh we can dream it's 2021 i don't think it is i think we're looking at uh, basically getting to the stage where we could have two big factory uh, teams in le mans hypercar in 2022 before we get to where we i think most of us are now expecting lmdh to be with a full launch in 2023 there we go so one quick one more from uh, from uh, Jacob asks about the Alpine 36. Is the 36 a write-off after the Spa shunt, or will the Signatech attempt to rebuild of that chassis in time for Le Mans? Uh, don't right. So this comes off the back of correctly. People have, uh, have have read and understood that the 50 car, the Richard Mille car, Richard Mille Racing, the all female crew plan for Le Mans. Catherine Legg's big shunt, that is a Signatech car. It's a Signatech run effort. That chassis was a write-off, badly damaged in the shunt, and totaled by the um, recovery effort to get Catherine safely out of the car. That needed to be replaced by a Signatech chassis. Don't assume that a team that has run two cars has just got two chassis. Um, the, the answer here is that in the case of some teams, they may have multiple chassis. I can tell you, without telling you which um, team it is, has seven Orica chassis uh, for a team that habitually runs no more than two cars. So the teams do have spare chassis. Sometimes those those chassis might be going through a kind of repair cycle or a, a, a kind of rebuild cycle. Uh, I don't know how many Orica chassis Signatech has, but if you recall that this is a team that used to run a two-car WC LMP2 effort, the answer there is, uh, and by the way, they always had a spare chassis in the back of the garage. They had at least three. One of those three we know to be a write-off. That means they've got two. And my guess would be the 36 car that had the big shunts um, at uh, Spa is probably repairable. Okay, uh, these things are extraordinarily uh, tough, and even you know if there has been some significant damage. These things are probably repairable. Uh, Jacob's story, but uh, question by the way is also, um, I think, based on the fact that the reality was that Orica did not have a spare chassis available at their scene workshop, which is literally over the back fence of. Uh, Paul Ricard, and that's why the Signatech uh, team had to ship in one of their their cars. There is, I wouldn't say there's a shortage of Orica chassis, but when you get one team without access to one of their chassis, so I'll give you, for instance, Dragon Speed uh, losing access to their 21 car for ELMS with the departure of Ryan Cullen from the team, 
they required a replacement car. Their other car is in the United States. Again, travel restrictions and all sorts of logistical difficulties means that's difficult. So they did a deal with the racing engineering team out of Spain and brought a team back into the paddock, or a car back into the paddock we hadn't seen for the better part of two years. There is not a huge teetering pile of Orica 07 chassis available to buy off the shelf. Uh, but most of the bigger teams do have access to at least one spare uh, should there be a problem in Extremis. In Extremis? That's one of my favorite bands, man. They're fantastic. More than words. Um, so uh, the answer, by the way, about the Alpine VIN is, yes, you can put an Alpine. If you have, uh, as Signific do, the opportunity um, to re-homologate those cars, you can indeed put a VIN number on it. Uh, a chassis plate on it that's uh, Orica. You've paid the, the fee. You take your choice. That, I think, will sort us for the moment for Weck Elms Acker. Elms, Elms Acker, apologies. I'll get that wrong. Well, what, where we do we go, next? Selector? Should we have a couple of general, her general ones, before we get into fun to finish? Sure. Um, let's that's have... a new category. What was that one? <laughs> uh, Jordan Hopwood says, does the price, not the value of a car, become cheaper as time and technology moves forward? For example, would it cost ProDrive less money to build a DBR9 uh, since it's from 2005 than a GTE Vantage since the GTE is, cu- is using cutting-edge technology? That's a, that's a smart question from Jordan. I take the point. If you were building a new car, and indeed we have had a new car built to uh, old specifications. I don't know if you've seen this story, MP, but uh, somebody has had a brand new Tyrrell P34 built. No. Oh, yeah, marvellous. Absolutely spot on. And even better uh, for this story, for some of those parts, what they actually did to pattern the parts was to measure and then upscale the some, some key parts from a Tamiya kit. Oh, that is so lovely. Jordan, I, just, I would I would say not necessarily. If we are talking about putting together a 1970-something Ferrari such-and-such such that raced at the 24 hours of wherever, very likely you're not going to have all the parts and pieces to do that. Very likely you're going to have to fabricate uh, things. And if we're talking about the car being accurate uh not something you're going to 3d print you're going to have to make a mold you're going to have to do a lot of things that are very labor intensive so if we're talking not too long ago probably not crazy difference but if we're talking about what it actually takes to you know say have a recent versus older Sports car built again. I know you're talking price, not value, but you know the price is based upon what it takes to make it. Uh, I wouldn't say that it would necessarily be cheaper. Now, the other thing you mentioned here about technology and cutting edge, I mentioned this at least once a month. You know, that 2005 chassis was cu- absolutely cutting edge in every way, shape, and form and filled with all the greatest things that were allowed in its day. Today, we would expect the electronics to be of a higher grade and a few other things, but I would not expect 
massive differences there. So, again, great question, but there's a lot of variables here that I I wouldn't necessarily say um, creates a, a difference of being cheaper per se. Indeed. I mean, the one associating point here, by the way, and he specifically is asking the question about build costs rather than value. To give an indication of just how quickly these cars can accelerate in value, um, part of a story I'm in the middle of writing at the moment uh, revolves around an auction uh, less than a month ago, uh, which involved uh, on the block the 2004 Spa 24-hour winning uh, Pro Drive, the Care Racing Ferrari 550 uh, GT1 car, that went for $4.29 million. Um, it didn't cost that to build it. Uh, that's a car that had quite some racing heritage. Like I say, it was a, it was a um, Spa 24 Hours winning car, won 13 of her races. Uh, but, you know, get it right. And the investment that some people place in these cars can pay off very big indeed remember for some cars back in the day and even now uh, these are cars owned by private individuals but run by large teams including some factory teams it's traditionally been a model uh, business model that's been followed by aston martin in recent years uh, those cars are owned privately and gain their provenance and therefore their escalation in value by being campaigned they hope with success by a factory team there we go. I yeah. did a in-car audio capture with a former Care Racing uh, 550 GT1 Pro Drive machine. Yes, yeah, Steve Zakia. Zachia. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. Was driving it at last year's Monterey Rolex reunion. Never met the guy. Didn't know anything. Walked up to them. Lovely just man. before they rolled, yeah, just before they rolled to the grid and said, hi, could I put this in here? And they're like, yeah, sure. I haven't posted that yet because it's just so damn glorious. I want to wait till we don't have the sounds of engines. And then I'll probably post that during the off season here. But, oh, <laughs> uh, super extra quadruple good. It was my friend. Um, <laughs> all right. What other generals? Uh John Schultzer here has got one that's uh, pretty... Uh, I don't know the answer to it, but it's a great question. What might the recently announced plans of Spiker and SMP for a racing comeback look like if they materialise? Not heard from anything from me on this topic. Uh, made me wonder if there's really so much behind it. The answer is, it was certainly announced. I've been sniffing around and seeing what I can find out. Always difficult to get any kind of intelligence out of SMP racing, and I mean that they are very quiet. Spiker, I've got some work to do to build confidence in the financial security of that brand. Can I put it that way? Uh, a beloved um, left field entry into the GT2 class back in the day. Might this be a GT car? S&P Racing have been involved in GT3 racing of late. It could possibly be a GT3 car. Might it be LMDH? It might. They've got drivers involved all the way up the racing scale, including the very highest levels of single-seaters, Formula One, IndyCar, and all points uh, around that. Anything or nothing could happen here. Um, and I think we'll probably hear a bit of a drip-drip from this this operation as things go forward. The fact they've bought 
so they've they've done a deal to partner with Spiker. Remember Spiker, one of those um, fairly unusual organisations that have had both a heritage in GT racing at Le Mans and also in Formula One. Um, so do I think it's Formula One? No, I don't. Do I think it's something reasonably high level? Yes, I do. Might it be sports cars? I think it quite possibly will be. Um, and in which case, I think you're probably looking either uh, GT Racing or LMDH. Uh, but I have no clue which of the two it might be at this point. Cool. What else should we do here in general before leaving? Uh, do you want me to just run through a couple? Damien Peach, when asked, will Spa 24 hours join the lift of major races to run behind closed doors? No clue. Uh, the fact that we've had some recent events at Spa uh, cancelled doesn't bode well, it has to be said. Uh, a name I've not seen before here, uh, Ivan Pandev. Can you break down some of the strengths and weaknesses of the uh, the Duquesne D08 versus the Ligier JSP320 and MP3? What do teams say about their relative speed, handling, ergonomics, etc.? The answer there is um, we've not seen a great deal of difference between the two cars this season maybe the Duquesne's a little less reliable until we got to Paul Ricard last weekend. And if you're interested in this one, Ivan, look at the results for both the Michelin Le Mans Cup and the European Le Mans Series. The European Le Mans Series, they, uh, result, they, they, the Ligiers decimated the Duquesne field. Uh, the Duquesne did not do well in those mixed uh, and inter-wet conditions. And again, certainly we're suffering some reliability woes. It could have just been bad luck, but the numbers sort of suggested different. I've heard lots of people, lots of teams saying very good things about the Ligier. As they should. They've there been go. good cars. The Normas as well over here. Boy, I tell you. Oh, yeah. Those yeah. Normas are. Uh... Uh, one, one other quick one here. Uh, in Keyworth, what's the score with the Gulf Livery GPX team? Winners of last year's Spa 24 Hours. This is a new team born out of the old Gulf, Gulf Racing Rain White, uh, Wainwright squad. A new team with the Gulf sponsorship has switched across. Uh, the Gulf Racing UK team that races in WEC, now solely owned by Mike Wainwright, used to be co-owned by Mike and Roald Goethe. Roald is involved with the GPX team. That's where that kind of that golf uh, livery comes from. He's got two sons who are working their way through um, the the ranks. Uh, there's uh, Fred Fatien, who's also been involved in the golf sides of things. But GPX was a new outfit came out of GP Extreme, which came out of the Creventic uh, uh, side of things, but now making their way, and impressively so, uh, in GT3 racing, but completely different from Golf Racing UK, which, by the way, despite the fact they've got that name, uh, do no, uh, no longer have the golf sponsorship. They keep the name because that's the name you register with for the World Championship. But my guess is that if Mike comes back next year, um, you'll see that team sporting a completely different moniker. Need to mention here, I believe this is a public service announcement, as someone who worked for an IndyCar team which named itself Team Extreme. <laughs> anytime someone feels the need to insert the word extreme in their team or series name, it's usually an indicator of the opposite being true. 
Uh, team mediocrity. Team mediocrity. There you go. Team meh. So here we go. Uh, why don't we move? Why don't we move to the grand finale, also known as finale? We're gonna do a little bit of f u to the n. We're gonna tell the n f u man, uh, Graham. I'm gonna lob. It's gonna be an underhanded lob. Oh, before we need to mention that our pal Kevin Perez Frederico for about the four hundredth time wants you to know that the grid life series here in the U S is great and awesome and you should pay attention to it and you can watch all of it on YouTube live stream. So thank you again for Kevin. We would not want our listeners to go to bed tonight without knowing that the grid life series is the bomb. Um, yeah. So Graham Goodwin, James counter tells you, you are tasked with designing a special edition of a production car for a personality in sports car racing. Uh, what is What car is it, and who is the focus of a special edition? Uh, Dinner with Racers suggested the Dan Binks edition of the Corvette C7 optimized for modding. Ooh, that's a great question. You tend to focus, don't you, towards the kind of driver things, but just th- think this one through for a moment. Okay, I'm going to give you two. Um, without a doubt for me, one of the drivers that most certainly deserves recognition for his contribution to a certain make uh, is Darren Turner. And I think a Darren Turner edition of the Aston Martin Vantage would be absolutely fantastic. I think it would uh, it would be a stone-cold uh, certainty for collectability. What would you do to it? Mm. I'll come back to that one. The other one would be a 4GT George Howard Chapel Special Edition. Okay. Now, what that would need to be is extremely understated. Looks as if it's going to be dog slow. But then you open up the luggage compartment and you've got there some removable bags of sand that you can put to one side. <laughs> that makes it... George is going to kick my heart. <laughs> uh, don't pick on tall people this, with long this, reach. I say this with massive respect and love. Oh, yes. There, there, is, there, is, there are few people on the planet more capable of reading a rule book to the maximum advantage of the team for which he is employed and responsible than George Howard Chapel. Um, I, I bow George to your massive achievement and knowledge and the fact that you'll take a little bit of leg pulling with fun. I'm saying that because it's just quite possible to come around here with a lump hammer and take out my knees. Uh, but what was a Darren Turner <sighs> special edition look like? There's all sorts of unpleasant answers I could give. Um, It'd just be awesome. That's it. Um, I think Darren deserves that. Uh, you know, we've seen him take a step away from a couple of his frontline uh, racing programs to do, take a more backroom role, uh, trying to get the Aston Martin Valkyrie uh, to, to the marketplace. And as a servant to that brand, um, and as someone who's had no little success with that brand, I think he... Dan Binks is a great call. Ollie Gavin's another one, by the way, that's been part of Corvette since before 
Chevrolet made the Corvette. Ollie is now 83 years old and doesn't look a day over 82. Uh, so it's it's that kind of part of the story, isn't it? The Danny Binks one, I think, is a great call, by the way. Yeah, it's a good one. I like the Patrick Long edition Ooh. for a Porsche. I mean, it'd have to be 911 base, 911 lineage for sure. I like the Patrick Long version, the full Luftgekult, air-cooled. Granted, we don't have those anymore, but something that is fully Pat Long, that is very Southern California, I can see some form of lumberjacky, leather-stitched seats and interior. I can see that 911 coming with a surfboard, mandatory, mandatory surfboard roof rack. And Troy Lee painted uh, design surfboard livery to go with that. Um, I can see the most Southern Californian Porsche 911. Again, I know we're 991 era right now, but something of that lineage that is just full Patrick Long. I think Um, it's basically the obvious thing to, to, to pay tribute to Pat, though, which is you open up the engine cover and it's going to be the one and only ever Porsche Testarossa. Oh, there we go. All of the, all the Pat Long editions are ginger colored, right? So they're all kind of <laughs> yeah. right. Uh, the other one that I thought of was a a Ford GT Special Edition, right? I know you you've already gone down the road here a little bit. Uh, the Larry Holt edition. Ooh, yes. So massive massive human hair but just massive white curly hair sprouting from the roof on back and tufts hanging off of the rear wing when it extends so you can have your own little aero experiments basically a ford gt with a giant white super curly stringy afro and but then also along the hashtag front nose of the vehicle of the car as well perched atop the splitter a big kind of abe lincoln curly white chin beard uh sprouty froey type thing as well so it basically looks like a santa claus for gt uh but it's going to be the larry holt edition so that's my contribution to the theme the, the final one i'll give you by the way and it comes from a podcast i listened to today by the way you did uh, the last week which was with bill oberlin um, and maybe what we need is a BMW M60 or 61 or Ooh. 62 or 63 or 64. I, be- yes, the Bill MW edition. Yes. Ooh. Yes. But I got to admit, my favorite tale from that whole episode, and if you haven't listened to it, uh, dear family, uh, you should. There must be a retro Mazda RX-7 edition where in order to start it, you have to light red shop rags that are stuck inside the intake on fire and rock it back and forth. <laughs> like, that's right. There, there's no ignition key uh, at all. Like, there, the, there are sensors within the intake that in order to... For ignition to be possible, they have to. It has to be at least three to four hundred degrees, letting it know that there are currently shop rags on fire inside the motor 
to try and get it to start, at which point it would let the ignition kick on. So, um, yeah, oh, my gosh, that was that was the craziest thing. <laughs> I like to think I've heard a lot of crazy stories, but that one, oh, that shot pretty close to the top right there. Uh, but, yeah, the Bill MW, I think that's a, that's a no-brainer. The, uh, the Larry Holt Santa Claus 4 GT edition and the Pat Long Ginger Surf Punk uh porsche mm-hmm. yeah but uh, uh testalonga i uh, we're in there i think we got i think we got some real options here should there should we have some form of east german era i don't know lada or something like that where the car looks essentially the same going forwards and backwards and that would be the Wolfgang Monser two questions edition because you really don't know where it's going. It looks and sounds the same going both ways, and you're not convinced it serves any real purpose. Trabants, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it's front and rear engine because they just they had because space. They can't decide. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that's a that's a distinct possibility. Okay. Just trying to think of any more we've had in the recent past. Um, is there an old, like really old, clunky Renault that requires the use of a hammer to hit the starter in in order to get it to run? And in that case, them. it would be the very obvious addition here, uh, supported be, by a certain hammer emporium. <laughs> Uh, the boot, the boot shoes, Renault. Yes, yes, I, I like, I like that. But it has to be a big kind of almost cartoon size hammer with a hole in the hood and some sort of lever operation. So you sit in the car and yank the lever back and forth, and it makes the hammer go up and down. Big hammer through the hood, hammering away at the starter to get the solenoid to uh, function and then fire up. So. I can think of one more. It's a bit. I can put this. It's a little niche. It's a Lamborghini. It's the Phil Keen Lamborghini Huracan Special Edition. Now, for those of you who don't know Phil, Phil's been around for a little wee while. Is a Lamborghini GT factory driver, but the legend that is Phil is that Phil will always, I mean always, moan about BOP. He'll then go out and win the race by three laps. Uh, I think that the other thing that Phil does is habitually loses the British GT Championship at the very last race. Oh, it could Jesus. be, uh, uh, he could be fifty points ahead. He can be three points behind. At some point during that race, he will be in a championship-winning position, and then the comedy anvil will fall upon him. So I think the Phil Keen Lamborghini Huracan will be advertised with 175 mile an hour top speed, not to 60, in 3.2 seconds, but actually will be an awful lot faster than they tell you it is. I love that one. I, I have one more, and you jog my memory. With The show just might never end because we're going to keep going. <laughs> it's another Lamborghini special edition. This is the gear racing Lamborghini Huracan. Okay. You see it once, you pay for it, you're told it's going to show up, it doesn't, the lawsuits start flying with the dealership 
because you were told that it was going to be there, but it wasn't. But they said that they indeed had one and it would be there, but it wasn't. And so you finally agree that you're not going to do lawsuits anymore. And then you get a call from Reeves Calloway saying that he might have a previous generation Corvette you could take home. It's a really strange edition, the gear racing Lamborghini edition. I'm just saying that Huracan's a bit strange where you pay for it, doesn't show up. You, you have to engage in lawsuits. And then finally, you have a Callaway Corvette show up, but it isn't legal and you can't use it. So what do you think about that edition? And there are a bunch of really pissed off women as well, like really and legitimately pissed off women. Uh, just it doesn't sound like because fun. No? All right. No. Well, no. I'm kind of out of additions, and I think we ended on a low, but that's normal. Let, let's finish off then with a couple of quick fire ones for the end of this show. Stephen Gates, GG and MP, you've both given a time machine, handily named Twisk One, could go back in time to a sports car year from the past, take all of today's technology, social media, TV coverage to report on it. Which one do you go for? Me pers- hashtag me personally, Stephen says, uh, it, for him it would have to be 1970. Well, hashtag you personally, what do you say? Um, I'm slightly torn here between – I'd be interested about the very height, the apex of Group C, whether or not with what we now have, we would see that as being good as we now think it was. I think that could be quite interesting. And the other one is it's, you know, a period of time that's come back into the spotlight thanks to Hollywood, and that is 1966, Le Mans, the Ford GT story, Ford versus Ferrari. I think that would be really, really interesting in the glare of modern technology. Uh, I think they're the two that I would like to have been there to have seen those in their pomp. I'm going to go Grand Am 2010. That's my choice, Stephen. No, wait. I was there. Oh, my God. Can I go back in time, Stephen, and take myself out of that? Is that an option at all? Uh, And take all the reporting I might have done and burn it so there's no evidence that I actually did that. Uh, I would say... You've chosen the romantic angle. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go, Graham, less non-romantic, actually. I will go 1991 World mm-hmm. Sports Prototype Championship. Ooh. Because, although I read about it all the time and watched whatever I might have been able to, if whatever was available in whatever capacity back then, was here in America doing sporty car open wheel type things and loving and knowing all these things firsthand with IMSA and whatever else. But I was not able to see any amazing Jag XJR 14, uh, Peugeot 905s and Mercedes. This is none of those cars in person, raging, mad mental craziness. So that's what I would go and do and bring all the reporting capabilities and whatnot because I 
know for a fact that it would deserve a completely insane level of analysis, reporting, investigation, documenting, etc. This just looks like it was such an amazing season. And yeah, a bunch of purple silk cut Jags that are Formula One cars, but called uh, WSPC entries. Yeah, I need to go see those live in person with a Wayback Machine. Fabulous. We're going to finish with one. It's another one from Jacob Bain. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a, I've never heard of him either. Question that dawned on him while he was picking cherries off a tree. Hmm. What's the most unusual way you've used your knowledge of motorsports in other non-motorsport related parts of your life? Did it work? And how many people stared at you confused? You want to crack at that first? Do you need to think about that one? I need to think about that one. Oh, let me give you, I'll give you a couple. Um, uh, we, we've talked before on the weekend sports cars about a varied career prior to motorsport for my good self. I can get, think of a couple of occasions um, when uh, people I knew via motorsport came in extremely handy uh, for things I was doing that were not involved in the sport. The first one was uh, I used to have responsibility for running the PR campaigns that surrounded UK government road safety um campaigns one of which was to do with seatbelt safety and through that um i got in touch with a man i'd met some years before uh, a guy called ross swift i don't know if ross's um fame spread stateside but ross as a stunt driver and now his son is a stunt driver um his achievements were utterly legendary and we did uh, uh a couple of setups for tv which had russ driving a road car with a couple of crash test dummies uh, on top of that car uh, with sheet of a large sheet and heavy sheet of glass uh, in front of those dummies, one of which had a seatbelt on, one of which didn't, and it literally smashed um, the, the coverage there. Russ was absolutely ace. The other one revolved uh, one of my last day jobs uh, working for the public transportation department in london tfl for those of you in the uk uh, where i ran uh, part of their uh, press office and it was part of the effort that saw the iconic routemaster bus taken out of service in london and as part of the final week commemoration we worked with the bbc uh, to show off some of the newer buses that were coming in to replace them, to show off the very last Routemaster bus. I'm proud to say I've driven that thing. It's an, a magnificent piece of engineering. But we had the opportunity to take it to the Milbrook test ground and test new and old together. Who would you pick to do that? Has to be a fresh, professional driver. Has to be someone who knows his stuff. I picked 2003 Le Mans winner Guy Smith. And I have very happy memories of Guy turning up in his Bentley overalls that he won the 2003 Le Mans 24 hours in and doing a magnificent 38 miles an hour on the speed bowl at Millbrook in a Routemaster bus. <laughs> that, that was one of the proudest moments in my PR career. And by the way, um, made a brilliant piece of television with it. Wow. I love it. <laughs> and he can drive a bus um well we've been having fun here and fun and the only thing that comes to mind is not super extra fun um 
how's this? I got one that's fun, one that's or not fun, but one that maybe is. I don't know. So I can tell you, Jacob, that my experience in motor racing as a team manager would also say as a team owner, because there's a lot of management involved in that, but primarily as a team manager, uh, crew chief and so on has been vital for what my wife and I have been dealing with for the last two years. It's been, I think, I forget the exact day, Graham, but right about today, I think maybe even this exact day or yesterday, two years ago in 2018, um, we got the news back uh, about her mammogram and uh, this whole breast cancer fight started. And I can tell you, Jacob, without, as Graham loves to say, a shadow of a doubt, I draw on the things that I've learned in motor racing mostly from a team management standpoint, also a little bit of strategy. I want to say engineering, but the processes and way things are done, the forecasting, a lot of the simple office type management things, budget, uh, scheduling, and so on. Those things get used every day to try and manage what we do in North American sports analogies would refer to it as quarterbacking the process. My wife, obviously, with the fight of her own to wage, uh, sure, she really is not someone who should be having to schedule and manage and be her own quarterback in this process. So that's been on me. And I have said to many, many people, Jacob, over the past two years, I am so incredibly thankful for having done the things that I've done in motor racing because I am drawing on them in our hashtag me personally life more than ever. And so what I do here with keyboards and microphones or cameras or any of that stuff, that's all fun and whatever has no bearing, no help whatsoever on the home front in terms of managing this and progressing through this. But yeah, having to manager, manager, manage racing teams and such. Yeah, that's been a huge help. Uh, the thing that I did when I decided I was done working in racing full-time as engineer, manager, whatever, whatever, mechanic, was I went to work, Graham, <clears throat> found a job in biotech, working in the purification department of one or two biotech firms. And it is super process driven also lots of mechanical hydraulic whatever type systems too where you are making drugs you are processing and filtering and purifying and you are doing all kinds of stuff down to bottling down to making the little small glass doses with capping them and such uh, a really interesting process of suiting up in Bunny suits, head to toe, uh, covered up in a full government inspected. Everything must be quadruple cleaned and, you know, just full drug manufacturing environment. And it was kind of interesting. Again, I don't know if this is fun, but anything that had to do with the machines and a little bit of understanding the engineering side and flow rates and blah, 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 blah. A lot of that stuff just came my way. And so I found a little niche in doing that. Because here's the, 
Here's the thing they don't tell you, Jacob. When you work in racing in a technical engineering managerial side, whatever, if you're putting your hands on the car, you're making decisions on setup and whatever, or you're making decisions and running the team and you gain the majority, if not all of those bits of wisdom and knowledge in the sport, the thing they don't tell you, yeah, there's not a lot outside of racing where there's a natural fit for any of those. So if you're a great race car mechanic, of course you can go to a dealership and work on cars and, you know, there are some things there, but having kind of an amalgamation of experience where you have done a lot of different things, there's no instant fit. And so I was so happy to find that this really terrible biotech company, as it turned out, um, decided that they should hire me and yeah so i did that my experience actually vaguely applied um and i was able because i got bored doing that pretty quickly i was able to spend a lot of weekends flying off to road atlanta uh to try and take photos and be a reporter guy and see if i could create a new career for myself or go here there or fly to sebring to engineer uh, world challenge car and run the team as well for the weekend just a lot of that kind of stuff so that was rather rather interesting i think we're about done for this week aren't we oh i'm completely done well i'm, I'm being stared at by a husky that wants me to leave his effectively his bedroom um because he wants me to open the door because he, he sleeps with the door open because he's a husky uh so it's going to be time to say thank you for joining us for the week in sports cars part of the marshall brute podcast um yet another week uh next week we're working on something a bit special uh, in advance of the most bizarre le mans 24 hours ever and i hope it will be ever for now with thanks to all of you for writing in again in remarkable numbers with your questions about emsa about ACO racing, the fun and the general questions are always a, a blast at the end of the show. But with particular thanks, of course, to Cooper Tires, to the Justice Brothers, to TorontoMotorsports.com and to Bell Helmets USA. And, of course, to my good friend and co-pilot with this show, Marshall Pruitt. I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been Marshall Pruitt. We've been the world in sports cars. You've been listening. The world in you. sports cars. Did I say the world in sports cars? Yes. The week? No, the week we got a new show. Did we just tell folks the new show we're doing next week? Is it? You haven't told me, so I'm go. I'm a, like. Sports and world cars. Holy yes. crap. Hashtag breaking exclusive scoop. We got the world in sports cars coming next week. Dude, then what are we going to do with this show? How's, oh, my God. Um, we've been us. You've been you. We'll speak to you next week. Thank you very much. Good night. Uh, uh, we're worse than Eurosport. Just consider that fact. <laughs> oh, send me your emails, Mark Cole. Come on, buddy. Come on, pal. You know, knuckle up. Send me the send me the nasty gram. I've been waiting all week. <laughs>